The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And with that, I'm going to begin reading our scripture, which is from Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he may fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many. And you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters, the people, and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of the bricks that they have made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to the lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And they were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle, that is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks the foreman people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. And when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put the sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, I remember uh, it was, oh man, maybe my junior, senior year in college, and I was sitting with a friend of mine who was struggling with a relationship. He was uh, going through somewhat seemed like a breakup, and he wanted to talk about it. And as I sat with him, I realized 
she was talking about this relationship. He was saying, gosh, it seemed to be going so well. Everything was, was clicking. We were in, in a good place and, and the way we communicated. And all of a sudden, she just decided that it just didn't seem right. And as the conversation went on, I realized uh, that he kept bringing up this book that was called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Some of you may remember this book, old title. Old book. It was thrown out then and, and he said, yeah, it's, she read this book and then all of a sudden our relationship began to just deteriorate and it is over. And soon I started hearing of not just this relationship, but relationships all over our campus that this was happening to. Uh, that a book was being spread, uh, 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 was being read and spread was this idea of, hey, this is how a relationship should go. And breakups were here and there and here and there. It wasn't too uh, far after that, right, that another book came out that many of us may have read and still is in the air. It's a little bit passe now, but The Da Vinci Code, right? Remember this book? Another book that came out and that talked a lot about authoritative view of this is, this is kind of who Jesus is. This is kind of how history runs. And, and though it was historical fiction, many, uh, maybe even here, have read it and thought, man, what am I supposed to believe about these kind of things now? kind of threw us for a curveball. Those kind of things come up for us, right? And it often feels like, uh, just like what it felt yesterday for me when I was coaching uh, my sixth grade baseball, six uh, year olds baseball team, where, you know, the ball gets hit into the field and all of a sudden the ball is picked up and every, there's a million voices. Throw it to first, go to second. No, hold it, throw it to first, you know. And they're just kind of doing this. There's all these voices saying, this is what you should do. This is what you need to be. This is where you need to be. And that's what it feels like often, especially these days when authority itself and authoritative voices are coming out of left field. God's voice in the midst of it, and maybe even being here at a church for you. Maybe you're coming back into a church. Maybe this is a place that you're coming trying to figure out God and figure out the Bible and those things. That we actually come from that stance that the Bible is actually God's voice speaking to us. But how do we know it's not just another voice of authority that's crying out like any other voice? This is how you're saved. This is what you do. Go here, (laughs) And it can feel that way just looking around. What do I listen to? Especially when we're listening to so many things. We're studying now a, a series called The Life of Moses. Uh, it's one that I really love. I've, I've, I've loved looking at Moses' life for a number of years. And it's so encouraging for me to look back at it. And it's a, the second book of the Bible called Exodus. Exodus is, from that term, the marked book for the people of Israel of what redemption means, that God brought them out of slavery and brought them into the promised land. And moreover, that he revealed himself as the God, as the one who hears them, as the one who cries out, who hears their cries, as the one who's watched them for, for years and years, toil in slavery. And now he chooses them to say, I'm gonna bring you out. And you will be button people and I will be your God. But we know that, we may have heard that, I and mean, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, maybe you've heard that, those kind of things from it. But <clears throat> even as we read that, I wanna remind you that on this side of things, in this conversation, Moses is still, he doesn't know that's gonna happen. In fact, we, 
we finished the whole chapter by him saying, God, why did you bring this evil on these people and on me? He questions him. He throws it back in God's face and said, what are you doing? Why did you bring me? You haven't delivered these people at all. <clears throat> what are you going to do, God? How do we know what voice to listen to? How do we know God's voice is authoritative? Exodus is a key book for us to think about what is it like for us in this world to hear all the voices and know that God's voice still is the voice of who he is, of who he's revealed himself to be, and that his voice engages with all those things. And we're gonna look at his voice and its reaction and reception in three ways here. We're gonna see first the reception of Pharaoh to God's voice. <laughs> we're gonna see second, the reception of, of the people of, of Israel of God's voice. And third, we're gonna see the reception of Moses to God's voice. So that we can look into this and see how does God's voice really connect to where we are. You know, um, I think it'd be interesting if, if we step back for a moment and at the beginning of this book, we're in chapter five now, and in the first four chapters have summed up a lot of history, a lot of years. One of those big things in Moses' life was the last 40 years he spent in Midian, away from Egypt, away from where he was initially born and raised for the first 40 years of his life because he was, he was taken in by Pharaoh's daughter. He was found in the reeds when his mom had to hide him. He was taken in, raised in Egypt. And then he made a decision after watching all the people, his people, realizing they are his people and knowing this, that he was gonna go out and try and rescue, mediate, be between them. So he sees one of his people being beaten by an Egyptian. He goes, he kills the Egyptian, hides him in the sand. Eventually he's found out, has to run as a fugitive and is away for 40 years. And now God calls him back. What would it be like, do you think, for Moses to walk back into the same place where he was somewhat familiar, had power, had authority, even to step back into the court, the palace itself where he was even raised and to now be saying something and to think that he could speak to Pharaoh in a way of, hey, it's time to let my people go. In fact, the Hebrew actually changes here from the first time Moses asked to the second as if Moses is trying to kind of bow up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go and then it moves to a please let them go after he hits initial resistance. And the, 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 the interesting thing is the way that Pharaoh reacts. He says this, he says, who is the Lord, verse two, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. There are a couple key things in that question. One is, it's not just his defiance. It's also, he's like, God, who is this God? It's his ignorance of it. He would have, in fact, Pharaoh himself would have uh, images of himself all throughout Egypt. For him, life didn't surround around any other God but himself. For him, looking at this question of, of, hey, let my people go, that ruined his business. And that ruined him as president. <laughs> 
That ruined him as, as CEO. That ruined him as the one who he saw himself everywhere. Why would he change that? I remember seeing uh, years ago, <clears throat> and it was such an incredible interview. Diane Sawyer, at the end of her career of doing consistent interviews, was asked, what was her favorite interview that she had ever done? You know, what was the favorite one? And she did so many, you, would, you, you kind of would, would try and guess. What are, what are the key people that she was interviewed, uh, that she interviewed that would really stick with her? And the one that she said was Saddam Hussein. And she said it was so profoundly impactful because when she sat with him, she, they argued over and over about the differences between things in the Middle East and the West and why he was in power and those kind of things. But she noticed that he would make a comment about the West or about America or about freedom and those kind of things and that she would, she would push back on it. And when she did, there would be a pause and someone from the side would come in, whisper in his ear and then leave back off camera. And then the conversation would continue. And afterwards, she said she had no idea what was going on, but she kind of started picking it up. And all of a sudden, she realized that what was happening was this person off camera was coming on and saying, don't believe her. You have built everything. It's all, it, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She, this person was to reinforce him. And she realized as she spoke, she said, this is the life of a dictator. This is what it's like to live as a dictator. That all, <clears throat> all the things around you support what you want, what you think. And that's the most dangerous place of this, this reception of authority. Look, we live in a time and a period where we can receive any voice we want to bolster what we believe in our opinion. Isn't that what internet does for us. We, we often read what we want to read. We often listen to what we want to listen to. And if someone who we already know doesn't speak the language that we speak or sit in the tribe that we sit in, we automatically exclude them because their voice is automatically against ours and we insulate ourselves. And that is one of the most dangerous points of what it means to be a dictator. And you're like, did you just call me a dictator? We all, isn't that what sin wants us to do? <clears throat> isn't that what our lives drive us to be? They drive us to look to ourselves, to listen to me, to say truth really begins here. Everything else has to measure to me. But when God's voice comes in and says, I will let my people go, how does it push on you? It's easy to be a Christian and it is easy to live and say, yes, I go to church. <clears throat> yes, I read my Bible. Yes, maybe I'm a part of a connect group. Maybe I wanna get involved in one of these parishes. But what is the real authority to you? Is it your discipline? Is the authority to you that you have your own voice of, I do these things, I'm a part of, I'm a Christian because. But what happens when God's authoritative voice pushes into your life in a way and speaks to you in a way that doesn't sit well with you and yet talks about who he is? When you read the Bible and you avoid certain passages, you avoid certain things because you go, yeah, that's hard for me to understand. Is it just hard to understand or is it just that we don't want to take it in? 
There's a danger of isolation. What does it do? This is why so many of us have felt that isolation. Know that pushing away of relationship because what God does is his voice comes in not just to say you're wrong, but to bring you into reality, into relationship. His authoritative voice gives you the freshness, the clarity of what is so that we don't live in isolation, so that we can be humble listeners and not fearful dictators. So we don't build our world around our image and everything around it. We build it around his. And are we aware of that? How aware of those questions are we for us? Soon, once Moses words land in Pharaoh's ears though, it would move quickly to the people. Pharaoh thought, "Uh, this is not good. I'm gonna put my thumb down. And soon, in majority of this passage, you read just the the practical nature of, "Uh uh-uh. I'm gonna put my thumb down. I'm gonna make sure these people know that they are under my thumb. And I'm gonna make sure that they are listening to me and not the lies of these people. In fact, Pharaoh says this to them in verse nine. He says, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to the lying words. He's saying, don't don't listen to these liars, Moses and Aaron. Get back to work. And in fact, I'm gonna try and squash any dreams that you have about leaving by making the work harder. And you see the reaction of the people. The foremen who are Israelites are beaten. The the work is made harder. The production has to get further and it just goes worse and worse for them. Uh, You know, Karl Marx, and it brings up that that thought a little bit. Why why did Karl Marx say that famous phrase that everybody uses, that religion is the opium of the people or the masses? It's been used, swapped those those words. What is that about? So oftentimes that's been quoted. What is that really getting to? Marx actually initially used that phrase to talk about how workers tried to alleviate or make uh, life palatable under hard oppression. Actually, in some ways, spoke to suffering. And what Marx was getting at was essentially saying religion is an opium. It's to deadness. So that when we hear an authoritative voice, we can hear another one that, that may ease our suffering. The people here react hard to God's words. They react hard because the authority, nothing pushes back on any authority than having ears of suffering, right? When we are under that thumb, <clears throat> when we are under the thumb, it could be work, it could be health, it could be a, a, a harsh marriage, It could be a broken friendship. It could be a number of things that come in. And what does it do? It it breaks your spirit. In fact, in chapter six of Exodus, it says, it even gives a definition of why the people have such a hard time hearing. Even that, that God says, it says in verse eight, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this, this beautiful covenant relationship. I will give it to you in your possession. I am the Lord Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. 
What suffering does is it breaks our spirit. I mean, it'd be easy to pick on the last year, but we have a lot of things going on with us. Long before we had 2020, we had things going on in our lives that, that oftentimes we may or may not have really paid attention to in that suffering. But what we do is we seek a voice that's gonna speak into it. And this is what, this is why it's so important and why we wonder and need to ask the question, how is Christianity different than what Karl Marx was saying? Is, it an op- is there an opium for us as people under our suffering, as a masses, that as we hear authorities that, that we may or may not disagree with, but find and feel the oppression and suffering Look, these people have been oppressed for 400 years. That's longer than we've been a country. This is all they've known. In fact, you see this pattern of of a broken spirit. Even when they leave, even when they're freed, they enter into the wilderness knowing that they've heard God's voice. They even see the mountain of where God's law comes down, the fire. They tremble, and yet what do they want to do over and over? The phrase that comes up in Exodus is, we wanna go back to slavery. We wanna go back. Because it's so ingrained in them. This idea of, I'm safer here. I can manage with this taskmaster. I can can handle this. And yet when God comes in that picture, It ruffles the feathers. I think it's hard to look at this sometimes and 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 to even say this, to be reminded that to be, to follow God's voice, especially in the midst of suffering, is incredibly difficult. In fact, it's actually difficult to be, more difficult to be a Christian than not. And I think if it, it's oftentimes where we can live in that numbness of Christianity or church or whatever it may be that we just kind of are trying to make it through. But the question really is what God is pushing here. Even when they hear this beautiful phrase, they're like, we have a broken spirit. How does, how does God mend our broken spirit? It can't be by saying that our suffering is, is just, you'll learn something from it. It can't be the deny it or or numb it. It has to be something more. What what does God do in the midst of this? He comes to them. He puts himself into the suffering. He doesn't just say, hey, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. He says, no, that which I'm going to experience myself and be killed is what's going to strengthen you. And that is one of the most difficult things. It is really hard to be a Christian. It's actually harder than not because we have to hold two things. We have to hold first that our suffering is real. Christianity different than than other philosophies, religions, it it says that it is real. The whole point of the cross is that Christianity actually addresses real suffering. God actually hears the people crying. God actually deals with oppression. Look, this labor, this slavery, God doesn't turn a blind eye to it, nor does he turn a blind eye to it, any of this 
type of oppression in our culture now. And the reason that we can speak up as Christians against any sort of oppression, any sort of dehumanization in our society, be it racial, be it social, be it cultural, be it whatever it is, the reason we can speak in is because we know there's a reality that our suffering has been addressed, that we have a God who cares and cares more than us going back into slavery, trying, and, and what, what actually transforms us to know not just that suffering is real, but to not go back into slavery, to not go back into what we're used to, to not go back to the masters that we think, if we do this, we'll take care of it. Just even reading this, if you notice, there's so much about labor and work here. How many of us are feeling just this way, even about our vocations? And a vocation doesn't mean just in a cubicle. I mean, in your home, in an office, at a school. That if we just work hard, if we put ourselves in a position to keep going, to work hard enough to keep it up, then we will have our rest. Yeah, 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 Christianity's great. Yeah, 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 I love coming here. I love this relationships. But does it really impact the way that we see our suffering and have hope in it? And to not crave going back to a life of slavery because none of those are good taskmasters. And I even want to say this, doing, and I have to say it put this way, these are the people of Israel who have grown up hearing the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever for 400 years. They've been hearing of the promises of God. They're not unfamiliar with these names. And yet when God's voice comes, what do they do? What are you doing, God? What are you doing, Moses? Why would you do that? Because how God addresses our suffering is by coming straight into it. Look, we, and maybe you're here and maybe you've been a Christian for a number of years. Maybe you've walked through suffering and, and known that. I've, I've walked through a number of different elements of suffering in my own life. And there are those moments where you just say, what? how does this continue? And sometimes we can go back to those masters. Sometimes we can even go back to things that we think are going to provide it. But all they provide is maybe even a good spiritual discipline, but they make a horrible savior. We can go back to the names that we know. We can even go back to the Bible without really listening to God and listening to his voice and hearing him. We can come to church. We can do those things. We can proclaim that. Why Christianity is different, why, why this is different isn't because we do have good disciplines. It's because those disciplines make terrible saviors because they can't cleanse us. They can't enter into the suffering. They tell us about the one who has. So much so that God found it worthy himself to take up the flesh and experience the actual suffering that you and I experience. Because even when you don't have answers, he is always with you in it. And the, what gives us hope is that he has gone to the depths of our suffering and sin and death so that we hold both that 
Yes, suffering is real, but the hope that we have goes beyond because he has come out of the actual grave itself where all of our suffering ends. He has not only experienced it, but even taken it further to renew. Nothing else gives us that voice. And you know what? Moses has some of the best final words here. And it ends here in your bulletin, but it doesn't end in the conversation. But verses 20 and 21 say this, or 22 and 23, sorry. Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Do you know that there are very rare occasions in the Bible? This, this may sound like a, I don't know how you respond when you read that, but especially the first line, there are very, very, very rare occasions where two why questions are asked of God in a row in the Bible. And Moses is the one who holds them both. It said that Moses in these positions when he would encounter this kind of thing would go directly to God face to face. Because when he heard this voice, when he felt, he felt the ripples of God's authority. He'd seen the burning bush. He'd heard the same things. He'd seen the miracles that God has even performed in small ways in his own life. And yet here he is, what are you doing? Why? He, he addresses, he says, why this evil? What's up with you? Why did you send me? What's my purpose? You haven't done anything to deliver the people at all. Are you gonna fulfill on your, your end? And I think we need to actually take that up as a, how beautiful is the reality of Moses' heart to look at God face to face and to feel the comfort of even asking the questions that we would be scared to ask. I was just talking to somebody the other day and one of the things that we were talking about was what it really means to have a faith that is relational because there are so many things that we're encountering, so many voices of authority that call us to go this way and that, so many, so many things that come in. Where do we actually have the moment of looking at God face to face and asking him the questions? Instead of making our own decision on these things, what, what would it be like for us to come to these services and to be where you are? To ask God the why. Because what shows that this is a real relationship is the fact that Moses digs deep in his heart to say, this draws up a lot of things for him. Verses 20 and 21 even say, they say the similar phrase that he heard when he had to become a fugitive. They said, may God, the Lord look on you and judge you. When Moses, right before he had to flee for his life after killing the Egyptian, they said, they were saying, who are you to judge us? You gonna kill us like you did the Egyptian? Flashbacks of pain, of of fear, of, of what, it, God, what are you doing? Why did you bring me back just to come back to the same place again, stand in the same place of, quote, delivering my people, trying to mediate, and yet 
all I hear is this deep pain and resentment from everyone around me. And you know what the way that verse one of chapter six starts? It says, but the Lord. Anytime a chapter does that. In fact, that's what Paul does in Ephesians. He uses this little word, but God. But God, but the Lord. But the Lord spoke to Moses. He doesn't react. Here's what's beautiful about what God does. He doesn't react the way that we think he would. He doesn't jump on it and say, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. He doesn't get defensive. He reiterates to him who he is in the face of that. You know, this table is such a marked difference of God's reaction to those questions. It even says in chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 27, which is considered in the New Testament, this whole chapter on the faith of Old Testament figures, that it says that Moses hoped and saw for what was invisible to him. That even in his defiance of what was he called in Hebrews the king, and that he hoped his faith was ahead of him. He looked beyond it. And he went to a God who, who knew and took up his suffering. Look, this table is a table that says a number of things here. It is our heart's reaction to authority. This is a table of authority because this is the way God answers all of those questions. If you ever wanted to know what Christianity does with the questions of why, they're right here. That you can bring your doubt, you can bring your difficulty, you can come to this table, you can feel such a confusion and yet this is how God addresses it. No other authority has done that. No other authority has said, I am the Lord and yet put themselves in the place as it says, as a servant to die on the cross. No other authority has addressed the deep parts of our suffering by suffering himself, even going, it says, encountering and sympathizing so much with our weaknesses, yet without sin, so that he could be the cleansing agent over all the ways that we think our relationship with God has failed or has succeeded. And this is the authority that brings all our doubts. You don't have to come to this table and figure it all out. That's not what this is. What this table's about is being in relationship with him. We take this because what? We proclaim the Lord's death, the reality of our suffering and his authority in it until he, what? Comes again. Because he will come again and transform it all.